The country having just emerged from a great rebellion, many questions will come before it for settlement in the next four years, which preceding administrations have never had to deal with. In meeting these, it is desirable that they should be approached calmly, without prejudice, hate, or sectional pride, remembering that the greatest good to the greatest number is the object to be attained. The question of suffrage is one which is likely to agitate the public so long as a portion of the citizens of the nation are excluded from its privileges in any state. It seems to me very desirable that this question should be settled now, and I entertain the hope and express the desire that it may be by the ratification of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. That was a portion of Ulysses Grant's inaugural address on March 3, 1869. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. Throughout 1867 and in the early months of 1868, Republicans campaigned for the states to ratify the 14th Amendment, and finally, after more than two years, on July 9, 1869, the 14th Amendment became law. The 14th Amendment is made up of five sections. Section 1 naturalizes citizenship, meaning that all persons born on U.S. soil are U.S. citizens the method for ensuring all freed black people became citizens. Section 1 also says, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any persons of life, liberty, or property without due processes of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws, end quote. Section 2 does away with the three-fifths compromise, counting all people as population. Section 3 prohibits any person who participated in rebellion from obtaining federal office. Section 4, which was originally proposed by Wilson, allows the federal government to deny the payment of debts that was incurred by the Confederates, and Section 5 gives Congress the power to enforce these provisions. The 14th Amendment extended the freedom and rights of black Americans, while also becoming one of the most influential and integral provisions of the Constitution, cited in nearly all of the important civil rights landmark decisions of the preceding 19th, 20th, and 21st century cases. Wilson served on the committee drafting the amendment and was a central figure in the amendment's shaping cementing his legacy in yet another aspect of American government. After the failed impeachment trial that ended on May 26, 1868, Republicans and Johnson were bitter rivals. All they could do now was wait for the elections in November. As the election of 1868 approached, 
Republicans were in need of a robust and clear-cut nominee to revert the damage done by Johnson and complete the now nearly five-year-old mission of Reconstruction. Americans knew of no other man to fulfill that job than General Ulysses Grant, the northern hero of the war, viewed in the same light as George Washington. Grant was born in Ohio in 1822 and attended West Point, graduating in 1848, just in time to serve in the Mexican-American War. Upon arriving home to his beloved wife, Julia, Grant fell on hard times, unable to secure a job. Throughout his early years, Grant was a measured supporter of ending racial strife with both black Americans and Native Americans. At the outbreak of the war, Grant enlisted in the Union Army and rose the ranks after becoming a prominent victor in the Western Theater. President Lincoln appointed Grant as Lieutenant General, assigning him the mission of bringing the war to a close and forcing a surrender by Confederate General Robert E. Lee. After the war, Grant held a pleasant relationship with President Johnson longer than other Republicans did. In 1866, Johnson appointed Grant as the General of the Army, the highest rank for an Army officer. Johnson also appointed Grant to the Secretary of War position after he removed Edwin Stanton, though Grant resigned after realizing the political implications of his appointment. As Johnson battled with Congress, Grant joined in the opposition. Grant opposed Johnson's vetoes of the Civil Rights Acts and the Reconstruction Acts. Grant had become a national hero and was openly discussed as being the sure Republican nominee in 1868, a prospect he admired. He was the only choice the Republican convention had for the president of the United States. There was no one else in the country that st stood as tall as U.S. Grant, soldier statesman of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era. That's Professor Joan Waugh. My name is Joan Waugh. For the past 30 years, I've been a professor uh, in the UCLA Department of History. I've been teaching the Civil War era and Reconstruction and Gilded Age policy to large numbers of undergraduate students at UCLA. It is also the focus of my scholarly work in, the, in of that era. era. I've published several books, co-edited others, and I, find, I, I really have been fascinated by history since I was a weird little girl and loved to read books, especially about Lincoln. I very early on decided he was a, <clears throat> a great figure in American history, but also other people of the era that in the 19th century, I just didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I have found that it is the most rewarding occupation anyone could have to read and write and think about and teach U.S. history. Professor Waugh will help us better understand the Grant administration during Reconstruction. If you can imagine what people lived through during this time, the, the coming of the war, the destruction and upheaval of the Civil War, Union victory, yes, but then Reconstruction and all, all the turmoil that took place against an assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and then 
U.S. Grant's election. And he was, I think you could consider him, Lincoln, a moderate uh, Republican when he came into office. He certainly supported uh, African-Americans' rights uh, and he, he worked toward that in, within Johnson administration. But I don't think we could consider him as radical as, for example, Henry Wilson uh, or Charles Sumner. Wilson had first encountered Grant in 1864 while dealing with military legislation required to supply and support Grant's troops. Wilson had become closer to the general in 1866 and 1867 as he worked to reshape and reorganize the military following the war. As busy as Wilson was dealing with Reconstruction policy, he was still the chair of the Military Affairs Committee, which required much of his time, despite the war having ended. Wilson worked with Grant and Secretary of War Stanton on restructuring the military to be less reliant on state militias and more unified, shaping the military we know today. Throughout all of their dealings, Wilson had remained in good favor with Grant. Republicans across the country who began to call upon Grant to run for president thought of no one better to run with him than Henry Wilson, the congressional leader of the war and champion of civil rights. Throughout Washington, rumors began to swirl that Republicans would nominate Wilson for vice president upon a Grant ticket. At the Republican convention in Chicago, the party quickly nominated Grant as president. Though he was popular, Wilson was not the only person in the mix for the VP slot. Reuben Fenton, a New York politician, Benjamin Wade, a leading Republican during the Johnson trial, and Schuyler Colfax, the Speaker of the House, all presented robust competition. On the first ballot, Wilson was placed in third place, with Wade and Fenton leading. Though with the counts too close, no winner was secured. On the second ballot, Wilson fell to fourth place, where he would remain until the fifth ballot, where Schuyler Colfax secured the needed delegates. Though Wilson was sore over his loss, he supported his winning opponent. Wilson said Colfax was the best man for the ticket and supported him completely. Behind the scenes, Wilson felt that some of his New England friends had not rallied hard enough during the votes. Wilson particularly felt Sumner had not been as active in pushing for Wilson because Sumner, quote, had the presidency on his mind. At the Democratic Convention in New York, Democrats rejected President Johnson, instead nominating Horatio Seymour, who was a former governor of New York. Wilson traveled thousands of miles and spoke to tens of thousands of listeners. Out of the eight presidential elections he had campaigned in, he claimed this was the most radiant. While traveling the nation, Wilson also participated in Senate debates regarding whether or not Southern states should be allowed to participate in the Electoral College. Wilson argued that the states that were mostly ready to be accepted back into the Union should be allowed to participate, as they would soon be electing senators. Wilson believed that states such as Texas, Alabama, and Virginia, which had been stubborn in accepting conditions for readmission, should not. Wilson's side won, and 34 of the 37 states would participate in the presidential election. 
In November, when the results were tallied and the votes were counted, Grant was the clear winner, winning 26 of those 34 states. Grant's popular vote victory was narrower, winning 53% to Seymour's 47%. When Schuyler Colfax was nominated as the vice president, Republicans speculated that Wilson would be chosen to fulfill a cabinet position. After serving as the military chair and in the Massachusetts militia, Wilson requested in a letter that he be appointed as Secretary of War. Wilson also recommended George Boutwell and Charles Sumner to be a part of Grant's cabinet. Wilson's request was never responded to, and judging on his silence, it seems Grant preferred not to have Wilson in the post. Though he likely would have enjoyed working in the Grant administration, his life at home would not allow it anyway. Harriet's cancer had worsened, and her pain became unbearable. Though Wilson was one of the busiest men in Washington, he prioritized his beloved wife. Harriet's illness became worse, and in the spring of 1870, she passed away, leaving Wilson completely alone to his work, having no direct living family. Despite losing both his wife and son in a period of a couple years, another child entered Wilson's life. Before Harriet's death, Wilson's sister-in-law, Nancy Colbath, came in possession of a little girl named Evangeline. Nancy and her husband Samuel, Wilson's brother, had been given Eva from a woman named Caroline Vreeland, who said Eva was her daughter who she could no longer support. Vreeland gave Eva to Nancy Colbath with an understanding that the little girl would be raised by Henry and Harriet. It's unclear why the Wilsons would accept this, or why Nancy undertook this responsibility. But in 1869, Eva began to live with Henry and Harriet. After Harriet's death, Wilson returned the three- or four-year-old Eva to Nancy, paying her child support for Eva's care. It seems Wilson certainly took joy in caring for his de facto daughter, though this affair was certainly one of the most bizarre of his life. We'll talk more about Eva going forward. In the months before Inauguration Day, Wilson had been busy as usual. In November, he spoke at the National Women's Convention, and throughout December, participated in Senate debates regarding women's suffrage. Wilson had become a vocal supporter of women's right to vote through his friend Clara Barton. Wilson supported a bill to enfranchise all of the people of Washington above 20 years old, regardless of their race, gender, property status, or religion. Wilson was acquainted with suffrage activist Susan B. Anthony. Wilson and Anthony held sometimes bitter views of each other and disagreed over the paths for advancing female suffrage, though they did sometimes get along and work together. Wilson believed it was top priority to secure voting rights for black Americans and then for women. Wilson knew any bill that attached women's rights to racial suffrage would surely fail to pass. Wilson was also an active participant in the debates regarding the drafting of the 15th Amendment, an act that would finally enfranchise black men. Wilson wanted to stamp out racial discrimination at the polls, though he envisioned other methods of how those who sought to suppress the vote could. Wilson proposed language to not only bar race as a barrier to suffrage, but also nativity, 
education, or religious belief. While Wilson's language would not make it into the amendment, he was correct in seeing how Southerners could create loopholes requiring black voters to take educational tests and by requiring their citizenship. In addition to supporting equality at the polls, Wilson also worked with his colleagues in the building of the Pacific Railroad, which had been planned and worked on throughout the Civil War. In March 1869, Inauguration Day had come, and Washington Republicans were abuzz in celebrating their success, ousting the despised Democrat president. He was our first civil rights president in, in the most meaningful way that we have come to identify what a civil rights president would uh, uh, look like, a white civil rights president. He did support the 13th and 14th Amendment. In fact, the 14th Amendment the uh, Civil Rights Amendment, one of the Civil Rights Amendment uh, was signed uh, right after he took office in 1868. But let's just go over that. The uh, U.S. Grant uh, supported the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the first and second Reconstruction Act, which threw out Andrew Johnson's reconstruction policies that were so favorable to white Southerners and replaced it with uh, military districts, uh, dividing the Southern states up into military districts, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. Um, and uh, with, the, uh, with the instructions, don't come back to us until you write a state contra uh, constitution, which includes votes for suffrage and rights and protections for African-Americans. So he supported that. Uh, and, and in terms of his own administration, he signed off on the 15th Amendment, which was the uh, act, the, the amendment to in, remove all restrictions to suffrage uh, for African Americans. One year after Congress passed it, in February 1870, the states ratified the 15th Amendment, finally granting all black males the right to vote. Section 1 of the amendment read, quote, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on the account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. End quote. Section 2 read, quote, The Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. End quote. It's, it's key to remember that the for the citizenry of, at that time, racial equality was not number one. It's not like it is for us today and has been for quite a while. It, it just wasn't even, even uh, considered important. And so that's, but, but I mean, except for, except for a few like your Henry Wilson, Northern voters, Northern voters as, uh, as you possibly know, uh, in the elections of 1866, decided not to offer black suffrage to in their states. There were, there were a number of Northern states that had it on their ballot in 1866. They voted and their voters decided not to. It was one of Andrew Johnson's great 
points that he made that why, why are you forcing this on the South, uh, Black voting, when you don't allow it in the North in most of the states? There were a few uh, New England states, about five, I think, that allowed Black voters. Of course, there weren't many African-Americans in those states. One of them was, was uh, Henry Wilson's state, as you probably know. With Black men given the right to vote, and Congress having the power to use the military to ensure their votes were counted, it didn't take long for the first Black congressman to win elections. In January 1870, the Reconstruction State Legislature of Mississippi, a state that had still not been readmitted to the Union, elected Hiram Revels to serve as Mississippi's senator. Revels was born in North Carolina in 1827 to a Baptist preacher. Revels attended seminary in Ohio and Indiana and attended Knox College in Illinois. Revels became a minister and school principal in Maryland. During the war, he was the founder of two colored regiments and served in the Union Chaplain Corps. When elected as the senator in the not yet readmitted state of Mississippi, Revels' election papers were sent to Henry Wilson. Wilson held on to the papers until February 23, 1870, the day Mississippi was readmitted. Wilson presented the papers to the Senate, and to no surprise, his Democratic colleagues immediately objected to the admittance of a black man to the Senate of the United States. Over the course of the next two days, intense debates filled the Senate. Democrats charged that a black person could not be a senator because they did not fulfill the constitutional requirements required to be a senator, since before the passage of the 14th Amendment, just months earlier, black people were still not citizens, and the Constitution requires senators to be citizens for at least nine years. Wilson shot back that these arguments, veiled in constitutional technicalities, were nothing more than racist attempts to stop a black person from serving in the Senate. Revels had lived in America his entire life and had voted for many years in Ohio. The only reason he would not fulfill the citizenship requirement was because of the pre-Civil War Dred Scott v. Sanford Supreme Court decision. The time had come for a black American to be in Congress. In a 48-8 vote, the Senate overwhelmingly voted to seat Senator-elect Revels. On February 25, 1870, Wilson entered the packed Senate chamber with an overflowing gallery, side-by-side side with Hiram Revels. Wilson accompanied Revels to the podium where he was sworn into office with the veteran senator by his side. As Revels signed the oath of office, the chamber erupted in applause. Inspired by this momentous step forward for progress, Wilson said, quote, I believe God made men in his own image and of one blood. Wherever there is a man throughout God's heritage, I recognize him as a man, belonging to the brotherhood of humanity, and I will protect and defend him." End quote. In March, Wilson pressed the Senate to accept a policy of improving relations with Native Americans through protecting and preserving their tribal lands and culture. Around this time, Wilson also spoke out against the exploitative conditions and wages being offered to Chinese immigrant workers 
who worked primarily in building the Western Railroad. Republicans had been so successful in seeing their passions for racial equality advance with the newly elected Grant administration when two of the party's leaders began to butt heads over the annexation of the Dominican Republic. In 1869, President Grant began negotiations with the President of the Dominican Republic, known at the time as Santo Domingo, to purchase the island as an American territory. Grant feared that imperialist European powers would attempt to annex the island, a violation of the Monroe Doctrine, a statement of foreign policy pronounced by President Monroe in the early 1800s that said that the Western Hemisphere was American turf and not to be touched by Europeans. Grant not only believed that acquiring Santo Domingo would be a good power move against the imperialists in Europe, but he also felt it may serve as a safe haven for the newly freed black citizens who faced persecution across the United States. Grant's attempt to annex Santo Domingo, which was kind of a crazy thing, but his idea was that, that it would be one day be another state and it would be a place where African Americans could go and escape. As the president negotiated, Senator Charles Sumner, still frustrated he was not appointed the Secretary of State in the Grant administration, began to bitterly oppose the annexation. Sumner believed that any treaty purchasing the island nation would be an unnecessary power grab for the United States. Charles Sumner had an irrational hatred of Grant, in my view, in, in which Grant assumed that Sumner would support this. He invited Sumner over for a meeting at the White House and Sumner, and, and he was actually shocked that Sumner worked, you know, just said, no, I will not support this. He believed it was a boondoggle. He didn't think it would, it would solve the country's racial problems. And he's probably right about that. But he, uh, Charles Sumner, you'd think would support Grant and his administration in some way. I mean, after all, they were Republicans, uh, but fellow Republicans, but he, he just, he just, he sabotaged Grant every way he could, including on the Santo, Santo Domingo bill, which, which Grant probably, I mean, it, it was just clear that it was going nowhere, but he, it, Grant just really believed in it and pushed it probably further than he should have. Sumner felt that by purchasing Santo Domingo, the United States would be launching itself into an imperialist power in the Caribbean, and doing so might worsen its relationships with other Caribbean nations. When President Grant submitted the final treaty to the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, chaired by Sumner, the committee rejected it in a 5-2 vote before it moved to the entire Senate for ratification. The treaty would purchase the island for $1.5 million and promise the island eventual statehood. While Sumner opposed the bill for foreign policy reasons, others, especially Democrats, opposed it as annexing Santo Domingo would bring along hundreds of thousands of non-white citizens. In June 1870, the Senate voted on whether or not to ratify the treaty. Wilson and 27 others voted for the treaty with the President, 
while Sumner and 27 others voted against it. With a two-thirds majority needed to ratify, the treaty failed, causing a deep schism within the Republican Party. Despite voting for the treaty, Wilson contended that the overwhelming majority of Massachusetts opposed it. Wilson believed it might be in the United States' interest to have some influence in the Caribbean, and he also wished to sustain good relations with the president. Grant charged Sumner with the reason for the vote's failure, retaliating by firing Sumner's close friends and successfully pushing to strip Sumner of his chairmanship in the Senate. In the coming months, Sumner viciously attacked the president with as much force as he had Johnson just years before, at one point telling Wilson that Grant had threatened him with violence. Although Wilson and Sumner remained friendly, their relationship strained as the Republican Party split. While the Congressional Republicans continued to support upholding rights in the South, their unity was greatly damaged in the years leading to the midterms and then presidential election would be uncertain. Today we discuss the 14th Amendment, the death of Harriet Wilson, the 1868 presidential election, and Wilson's application to be a part of the Grant cabinet, the advancements of racial equality and suffrage, and Wilson's support of women's suffrage. We also covered the debate around Santo Domingo and the split within the Republican Party. Thank you to Professor Joan Waugh for helping us understand the Grant administration and Reconstruction. You'll continue to hear her voice in the coming episodes. Just a reminder that we have just three episodes left before the series concludes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening on. Check out henrywilsonhistory.com for more information and for the newly added Henry Wilson and the Civil War store, where you can purchase stickers or support the show. If you have any questions, please shoot an email to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll continue to discuss the Grant administration and the era of Reconstruction through the lens of Henry Wilson.